Hi, I'm Mel. And I'm Safs. And we're going to take you away from the play. This week we had one of our most favorite people, Dr. Courtney Cito. She is assistant professor at Queen's University in the School of Kinesiology and Health Studies. Her research focuses on the connections of hockey, Canadian citizenship, race. It's all around, all encompassing. It's incredible. And you know what? On top of all of her research, she also has a really cool social media project. It's called Offside Plays, and shout out to them because they always like and retweet uh, our stuff on our account at Mel underscore and underscore Sass. Little plug there. Um, but it's really cool because um, Offside Plays they they look into uh, racism, sexism, homophobia, you know, in in sport and physical activity. So it's a really cool initiative. She's also the senior editor at Hockey and Society. Uh, it's a really cool blog. If anyone is interested in looking at hockey uh, from a critical eye, it's it's the place to go. So please check out Hockey and Society and Offside Plays. And, you know, knowing Courtney, she has relentless work ethic. She also just released a book called Changing on the Fly, Hockey Through the Voices of South Asian Canadians. Now, this was just released uh, in September, and at the time when we recorded this, uh, it had not been released, but we, the aim of the, our interview was to discuss her policy paper for anti-racism in Canadian hockey, and unfortunately, it is still very relevant. <laughs> yep, unfortunately it is. So, like Mel said, we recorded this back in May. So, you know, uh, you know, we hope you enjoy this episode. We hope you learn a lot. And, you know, be sure to keep an eye out for our behind the scenes that we will be releasing uh, this week because we're going to provide a bit of an update on how things are looking uh, with, you know, this policy paper and anti-racism and how it pertains and relates to Canadian hockey. Uh, we, we caught up with Courtney to see if anything's changed. So uh, be sure to tune in. But until then, enjoy this episode. I know you've been very busy, so thank you for taking the time to talk to us. I've always got time for my favorite podcasters here. Oh, oh, okay. You feel so right. lucky. You feel, feel so, lucky. so lucky. The pressure is on for this interview. Anyways, <laughs> before we get into your work, um, I just wanted to know, how are you doing during this pandemic and with everything that's happening in the world? Uh, yeah, I mean, not too bad. Certainly no complaints. Uh, everybody that... You know, my friends and family are fed and clothed and healthy, so you can't really complain. Um, going a little stir-crazy now that I'm in Vancouver and the weather has not been cooperating very well, but uh, otherwise, it's pretty good. Um, they're actually starting up uh, organized hockey again in Vancouver soon. They're oh. trying to they're trying to do a four-on-four -four rec league, um, but, I mean, we're pretty on the fence about who's going to participate and not. I don't think I'm going to do it. The four and four just seems too much like regular hockey. Yeah. Um, if they were going to do three on three, that for some reason it seems like it's more space. And I'd be like, okay, I might be more convinced. But I was like, hmm, this sounds, sounds like Corona set up this league. <laughs> yeah. Well, and is removing one player 
like increase distancing that much more i don't know it's gonna be interesting to see how sports re-enter society at this point um Mm -hmm. in montreal arenas are supposed to be opening as well but i haven't really heard any protocols on how uh distancing is going to be maintained or if like everyone's gonna have to wear fish bowls or something (laughs) i I don't know i mean we can all wear those massive bubbles and just like play soccer on ice or hockey on you know it doesn't matter yeah i mean i'm hoping to get on the ice just to like do some skills uh, maybe mm-hmm. like with a couple girls it'll be nice but uh who knows but i'm glad you're back in vancouver back to the old stomping ground <laughs> yeah i mean when when you were on uh, when you're doing your ig with Melo, you were talking about your your ideal place to live. And I was like, oh my God, she's talking about BC. I, I am so a West Coast girl. If I, I don't know. Like I love mountain biking. I love hiking. I love lakes. I love skiing. And I live Oh yeah. Myself. This is your playground. This is your I playground know. for sure. <laughs> it's just so far from all the people I love, but. I have the same feeling about being in Ontario. I was like, I love my job, but I'm also far from a lot of the things that I love. I was like, can we not put these two things together? (laughs) (laughs) Well, don't transfer because Queens is very lucky to have you. And I guess this is a good segue to to go into your research. And for people listening, can you just explain what your research is and maybe how you got into it and give them a little bit of an overview of, of what you do? Well, I mean, I guess the the research that I'm best known for at this part, at this point, is like racism in hockey, uh, very generally. So, uh, my PhD work centered around South Asian experiences in ice hockey. Um, I wanted to do a PhD project that would allow me to hang out at the rinks, and I just was kind of struggling to find something. And then the NHL came out with its Hockey is for Everyone campaign, um, and at the same time, the Hockey Night Punjabi broadcast was uh, doing quite well. The movie Breakaway came out, and I'm, and coupled with like some kind of personal experiences working at SportCheck, um, it seemed like there was something missing from the overall narrative of hockey uh, that nobody else was really telling, and so. I was just like, let's let's ask some people some questions and see what happens here. Um, and it turns out that South Asians in particular, because that was the group I was researching, they had a lot to say because nobody's ever asked them about their experiences in hockey. So that's kind of the main trajectory. Um, also do some work around women's hockey um, and then also kind of the environmental impacts of, of sporting goods. So all in and around sport, but uh, with very wide ranging kind of issues. Interesting. I mean, so I guess this kind of segues because Saps and I were talking a little bit beforehand. I, I don't know anyone else who, who studies this kind of stuff. In, in general, are you kind of the only person studying this? And and maybe specifically to hockey, but do you collaborate with other researchers looking at maybe, you know, the intersectionality of sports in, in, in other sports? Yeah, so I'm definitely not the only one in this particular area. We, we call it broadly kind of like the sociology of sport. Um, you can find us in many different departments, um, sometimes in kinesiology departments if they have a stream for it, uh, but you'll find also people just in sociology, cultural studies, gender studies, economics. Um, so we don't really have like a home per se. Um, and with respect to kind of race and hockey, there's certainly other people that do... Um, work in and around it, or they have kind of ventured uh, to do smaller pieces. But I guess my thesis was the first um, 
kind of coordinated look at racialized experiences in around the game, which I was really surprised at because a lot of the times I was creating the literature myself. Um, and in Canada, we just don't talk about race in sport very much. So a lot of the literature I was pulling from was from American scholars and British scholars. So, you know, I'm writing this thing in about 2016, 2017. And I'm thinking, am I really the first person to be, to be writing these kinds of stories? Or like, this just seems odd. Uh, but apparently, sometimes I was the, the first person. I mean, thankfully, you know, you are passionate about this. Because especially now, you know, we're living in a time where you know, the Black Lives Matter movement is a little bit more prominent just with recent events that have occurred. And, you know, I think it's it's nice that you're trying to create like a, a central hub where people can access information. Because what I found when I was trying to just read up on, you know, kind of reference your work, it's everywhere. You know, it you know, you have to dive into so many different facets to find little tidbits of information. And I think already the fact that your research can be in the kinesiology department and others in different departments at universities it makes it confusing a little bit um, but you know with your newest anti-racism policy um, can you talk about a little bit about how that came about and maybe the process into assembling the information for that policy paper and first off, where can people find it? We want to make sure people can find it because everyone needs to have a, a read. Yeah, so the anti-racism policy paper is a free PDF download that you can find on hockeyandsociety.com. Uh, we make sure that it's right up near the top of the uh, webpage there for people. Um, the policy paper is a result of the 2019 roundtable on racism that we held at Queen's, which was the first time really that we know of um, that racism and hockey were kind of put in the same discussion for, for public debate. Um, and the keynote speaker, Eugene Arcand, who is a residential school survivor uh, and high-level hockey player, he didn't want to... Um, he didn't really want to do the keynote speech because, you know, talking about his residential school experiences isn't a happy memory for him. Um, and so he said he would do it if that discussion didn't stay in the room. There had to be some push for, for larger structural change. So the policy paper is really because of Eugene Arcan. Um, and how we kind of put things together was in part the discussions that we had at the roundtable, but also... Um, drawing from my own research and Sam McKegney, who's a co-author in the paper, and he's um, leading the Indigenous Hockey Research Network, um, and Bob Dawson, who is a, a former hockey player and black hockey historian, diversity consultant, and Michael Oxy at McGill, uh, who's doing his PhD on Indigenous hockey research. So kind of the four of us put together um, research that we've pulled together and, and really situated around these three pillars that we believe are integral to making systemic change, which is power, privilege, and access. Um, so those are kind of the three things that we, we tackle. And it's really a document aimed at, at uh, Hockey Canada in particular, but what we talk about can be certainly applied to lower levels of hockey. What I think is great about your policy paper is that what what's really at the center and at the core of it was also uh, shedding light on, you know, the importance of recognizing mm -hmm. and including the indigenous communities of Canada, because that's not something that, <laughs> you know, unfortunately is talked about enough, you know? So I just wanted, I mean, it's not even really a question, honestly, it was just more of an observation. And yeah, I mean, I, I guess, you know, what was kind of your experience researching 
researching that, like, did you have a lot of experience uh, or knowledge prior to, to the policy paper about like the indigenous communities in the country and their involvement in hockey? Yeah, I mean, it definitely came up when I was doing my PhD research. So the first kind of iteration of my introduction, I wrote it and I was like, hockey is a white man's game created by white men for white men. And this is why this is why nobody else gets to excel in the game. And I gave it to my supervisor and he's like, uh-huh. He's like, you need to go read again. And I was like, what are you talking about? And then I found like the book about the Colored Hockey League and um, Michael Robodeau has a book um stick handling in the margins about indigenous hockey and and it really started opening up a whole other avenue of literature and I was like I had no idea right like as a Canadian you think um you know the history of hockey because you watch hockey night in Canada every every weekend growing up and you're like yeah I know hockey and the truth is we know nothing about hockey actually um so I mean that was a real learning curve for for me um so one of the things that I kind of try to try to undo is this belief that many of us have been taught that hockey is a white man's game Um, because it changes the entire dynamic of the discussion then if you understand that no this is this is a game that has very strong racialized contributions to it so you're not actually just trying to invite people into this game right we always talk about it as oh new immigrants are coming into this game and we need to introduce them to it but if you tell it as like this is this really is canada's game because of um because of the people who have made it what it is, um, then you're inviting them kind of to, to, to back into their own kind of history in some kind of way, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, like I, you know, I grew up, I'm a white woman. I grew up watching hockey. That was my experience with hockey. You know, I, I didn't really research it. And the fact that you had to, re- you were writing a paper and you researched it, and then you had to dig deeper to find like the true history and like the, the diversity of hockey in Canada is just a testament to how much we've buried Mm -hmm. that history. And it's terribly sad. Like, like just as far as like my gender, all I saw was men playing hockey. And I think it was probably 2016 on my birthday. uh, A friend of mine gave me a portrait of, it was McGill's like first women's hockey team. And it was like early 1900s. And I was like, what? Like, like the, so there was a collective of people playing long before you know whether it be the indigenous community first you know uh, black people other minority groups or, or women these groups were always a part of hockey but we have just whitewashed that sport and I think you know what this policy paper what I loved about it a, it was very easy to read it was very you kept it really simple you're like fact there is racism <laughs> let me give you some examples and then, and then actionable items. And I think what I found easiest is like, A, as a white person, it was easy to read. It was like, perfect. I see that these examples are happening to people because I have the privilege of going on the ice every, every day, never worrying about someone uh, throwing derogatory comments because of the color of my skin. Yes, other things happen because I'm female, but um, now it's like being more aware of like, whatever, like my colleagues, my friends, and trying to be more hyper aware of how I can help um, individuals and grow the game in that sense. So, A, I just wanted to commend you on how easy the policy paper is to read. Like, there's no ambiguity. Read it. You'll understand. And, and you know, you'll, you'll know how to make some changes. Um, so I guess maybe now we could segue into, like, sort of your, your research and as far as a 
it relates to women's hockey. Obviously, you and I have worked on a lot of things. So it's kind of fun that I get to interview you now because you've interviewed me. This is true. Yeah. Um, I'm going to nail you with all the questions. <laughs> women's hockey in particular and like we don't really have a discussion about racism or we haven't had a discussion about racism in women's hockey because we've been so concerned with fighting for women's hockey as its own entity but one thing that I've noticed is we start the history of kind of racialized women in hockey by and large with Angela James like she's the first black woman who's ever played that we know of but there has to be some historical um, context or, or some sort of artifact that black women played during the colored hockey leagues of the Maritimes. Like I find it very hard to believe that all these men were playing hockey at that time and that no black woman or young girl put on some skates and kind of skated around with a stick, right? Like we know very well from other sports that wherever boys and men have been playing hockey or sports, um, girls and women have done it too. They just usually do it in a very secretive way. Um, so I think that there is a like a, a really good opportunity for somebody, hopefully this is not myself that has to do the digging, but somebody um, that looks back into the historical archives to see that I think there is a much longer history for racialized women in hockey as well. And I think that that would be a really interesting um, and important contribution to make uh, to, to kind of our understanding of hockey in Canada. Yeah, because like when I think of like Angela James, like like, the, my first thought isn't, like, she's a black woman. I'm like, yeah, she was, like, the trailblazer for us, you know? <laughs> it's, like, we're always so busy trying to fight for so little as women, sort of, like, we're really, we need to uplift, sort of, black women, people of color to, to lift, you know, all women, essentially. Because, like, being a white woman, I'm already privileged just so much more. But we get so used to fighting for one thing, when really we should just be fighting mm-hmm. well for everything well that's why i think the pwhba is kind of great right like this is the first time in a very long time that like women hockey players are fighting for more than just like an incremental game and it's just it's and it's scary because you don't know what's gonna like come right we don't know especially with the pandemic it's it's it <laughs> it definitely creates an even bigger question mark but that's why, you know, that's why I think that the PETA and maybe Mel, I don't know if you've had like discussion with other women's hockey players about this, but, you know, what I think is that in the future, you know, I think the league could be a great model for other professional leagues, men's leagues, other women's leagues to kind of incorporate the policies uh, that are in Courtney's paper, right? And even... Even right now with the PWHPA with the Dream Gap Tour and, you know, whenever that starts up again, because, again, we have no idea what's going to happen. You know, I think these are definitely like I hope that these are discussions that are happening within the women's hockey circles. Yeah, and I hope so. I don't know, like as as a member right now, I'm not a, on the board, um, but these these discussions need to be had. I mean, there's no better opportunity to instill proper habits early on. I mean. Because there's never going to be the excuse, well, it's always been this way. Because no, we're starting it correctly. Mm-hmm. So you know, I you know, if I have the opportunity, Courtney, I'm, I mean, you're working with Liz Knox a lot, which is great, and she's starting. Uh, I think 
you're possibly invited to this committee, but I know there are some discussions uh, within the P-Dub on, on how to sort of implement uh, a policy that's going to really a, acknowledge racism in hockey and have some actionable items to, to uh, you know, whatever, penalize or whatever to, to change. No, I think that, I mean, you guys are right, that when you have a clean slate, uh, things are so much easier, right? We're seeing that with the NHL Seattle team. Um, They're being very conscious about who they bring into the organization. Um, So those are the opportunities that you really need to jump on because um, otherwise, as you know, I've talked to some other people working in the realm of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and they're like, it feels sometimes like we're just waiting for people to die in order for there to be some sort of changeover, right? Like that's kind of... Um, the mentality sometimes is what it feels like, right? Like that's the uphill battle um, because people are, they refuse to kind of relinquish power or share power in any kind of equitable way. So when you have a clean slate, those are really when you can make the most radical changes. And and like you said, Mel, like you create good habits um, by being very selective about who you bring into an organization. And, and I get that we all want to work with our friends, um, certainly that's what happens when I run panels and things like that as well. You want to in- you invite people that you want to hang out with, but at the same time, at some point you need to make new friends. You need to be like, okay, we cannot keep drawing from the same friend pool. We need to invite, um, more people, different people into this and, and have more friends, right? <laughs> like that's a good thing. You see that in, in men's hockey a lot. You see former players become coaches right after they retire or like, it's always the same people involved in those circles. And like, even with NHL coaches, I I think I saw a stat about like how there have been like no new coaches in the league for a very long time. It's like impossible to, (laughs) to kind of get a job there, which is, it's sad because it just, it stifles creativity, (laughs) right? Cause everyone's going to end up having the same ideas and bringing the same kind of mentalities wherever they go. And I like that you mentioned Seattle because honestly I'm, I'm so pleasantly surprised by that organization. Like it's so great to see like the amount of diversity they've hired so many women and people of color. And that's actually a great segue uh, into talking about the NHL because the NHL is having this, they're responding, you know, as, as crazy as that might sound, they're responding to, to everything that's happening in the world right now, especially after uh, George Floyd's murder, you saw players releasing statements, which you know, isn't anything, it doesn't mean anything if they don't back it up with action. But we've never seen them actually like take a stance about this sort of thing in the teams as well. They release statements. And I know that on Hockey and Society, you rated those statements. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. <laughs> um, and I just wanted to get your opinion on like, do you think that, you know, the conversations that are happening in the NHL right now, you know, about race, do you think that it could provide a launch pad? for the players to become more comfortable uh, talking about issues like sexism and homophobia that are obviously very entrenched in the game, uh, specifically on the men's side. Do you think that, you know, maybe it'll create this degree of openness that where players feel more comfortable talking about it, whether it's publicly to the media or even, you know, in their own locker rooms? I certainly hope so. I mean, we've this is unprecedented what we're seeing in the NHL and, and kind of sports worldwide, but also with the global protests uh, around George Floyd's murder. So um, it's a very hopeful time. But it, I think what we're what we're really seeing in this moment is how many people think they get it, but don't actually get it. 
um, that has become very apparent, especially with those NHL statements. Like, um, yeah, the, the, the grading article I put was kind of tongue in cheek, but the fact that if you're the team that's coming out with your statement three days after other teams have done it and you're not learning from their mistakes says a lot. Right. Like you're not even trying. And that was the really frustrating part was that the ones that were coming out later were not better. They were worse than the ones that came out sooner. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, the the thing with the Tyler Sagan video that they released that was extremely problematic. Um, it was, was, again, a perfect example of like, okay, you guys are trying really hard and you're spinning your wheels because you have no idea really what the problem is. You don't know how deep it goes and you cannot hang this all on Kim Davis. Like this is not a one person solution. Um, so, I mean, the NHL has, still has a lot of learning to do. It's nice that they are open to the discussion now, which has definitely gotten a lot better in the last couple of years, but um there are a lot of people who cannot stay in the organizations and that's that's the hard truth that they need to to understand. And I think just like with the statements coming out and especially those as you said who came out days after other statements that were not excellent let's say it's just proof that they live in these bubbles. Like they 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 are a isolated unit who have no diversity and didn't consult experts or just you know, if you had a Twitter feed and you followed the right people, you would just know that people were burning certain statements. <laughs> like, so it's just like it's just evident that you don't seek to even try. They just live in these little bubbles and, you know, they consulted their lawyers and their lawyers said it was probably fine. And I don't know if they just shut off the comment section or I don't know. <laughs> it, it didn't seem that difficult. And I think. I think like people are scared, but it just comes down to education. Just make an effort into to learning a little bit about it. I mean, I feel like for me personally, that's been something I've been trying to do because, you know, I, I'm a white person. It, I've not lived these experiences and I didn't, I didn't know anything about like the black history of, of hockey players. I took Kev Raphael recommended Black Ice, um, the book. So I've been reading that, which is amazing, but it, I think it just takes a little bit of effort and I'm really hoping that the NHL um, with, you know, their potential playoffs starting up, don't forget about sort of the progress that, that needs to be made and it doesn't get sidebarred because the big fear of mine is that, you know, this is, this is not the first time something like this has happened. I think the pandemic has helped sort of give it a little bit more momentum because people have more time and to, to they're less distracted. Um, so I'm just hoping that, you know, this doesn't just get washed under the, the rug. And I guess, like, my question would be, like, how open are people to your policy paper? It's obviously um, catered towards Hockey Canada. Has there been any success with having you know, people within that organization read it and and be enthusiastic about implementing some of it? Has there been any positive breakthroughs there? No. <laughs> Terribly sad. Um, yeah, so they were not uh, 
present. They didn't have anybody present at the the round table. So they, you know, you could have sent like an intern to to sit in with us for the day. But uh, um, we just got met with absolute silence when we invited them multiple times to the round table. Um, they received copies of the policy paper in advance of it being published. Um, and yeah, it's just been zero engagement. Uh, from Hockey Canada. So that's super disappointing. So where people are picking up on it is really the grassroots levels. Um, you know, I we came up with the, the Q&A because we were getting so many requests from minor hockey associations as to like, we found this policy paper, how do we implement it? Um, so we figured, you know, let's get everybody together and try to answer people's questions at the same time. But and it's certainly gone upwards in that we have representation from U Sports and, and USA Hockey and things like that. But um, the the whole point of the paper was to make sure that minor hockey associations don't have to do it by themselves, right? They can't structurally change the entire system. They can't hold people accountable if Hockey Canada is not on board with that plan. Um, so what we have right now is uh, a very strong group of well-meaning individuals with zero structural support. Um, so, I mean, obviously that's kind of depressing and it's disappointing, but at the same time, uh, players generally are far more radical than the organizations that they represent, right? So you can see that in the NBA, the WNBA, and the NFL. The players are the ones that kind of drag associations forward <laughs> reluctantly. Um, so I think if we can get enough, you know, a critical mass of people that are in the game that are saying, we need your help, we can't do this without you, right? Um, uh, your association can have a, a very good anti-racism policy and, and c culture within that association. But, you know, you travel for a tournament or you have other teams come in and, and they don't share that view. Um, and suddenly none of the players are protected in the same way. So it really does need to be a top-down initiative um, for this to have any actual traction. You said it best, like the players have so much power. And if, if they all come together and demand change, like as we've seen it in the NBA, it's it's a really powerful tool and I think at least when it comes to like NHL players who are all predominantly white there's definitely like this fear and and of course it's kind of like you know just snap out of it like you have so much privilege you're going to be protected you're in no way going to be treated the same way as someone who's black or indigenous or any other person of color when it comes to the players you you could tell a lot of them are just completely uncomfortable they're 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 scared you know and as much as it's a question of being brave it's also a question of being educated and you know I wonder you know can employees you know within an organization and maybe not the coaches or the top level guys even though it has to be them it has to be them but it seems like they're most reluctant to change you know is there a way to make these players more comfortable within the organizations or do the players are the players kind of on their own in that regard uh... Yes and no. Um, I think there's certainly a lot that we can do to um, kind of support players. And personally, my view is that, you know, you make, you make it available for players to opt in to whatever kind of uh, anti-oppression education they might want to engage in. So whether it's feminism or anti-racism or uh, homonegative language, uh, I think for players, they should have to opt into it because mandating that kind of training for participants doesn't generally go over very well. It can create a lot of resentment and uh, do the exact opposite of what you're looking for. 
so I think that uh, mandated training should be for um, uh, leadership positions because you have power. Um, so in that way, I think, you know, giving, having the opportunity for workshops and seminars and just kind of like discussion groups uh, can be very helpful for players. But at the same time, like you said, it really needs to come from, from the inside, right? Like they have to want it um, and they have to be ready for it. You cannot make people um, an activist overnight, right? There's no, there's no amount of bullet points that you can put on a PowerPoint that are going to be like, oh yeah, like I feel like I can be an activist now. It's really something that has to, to drive you because there are legitimate consequences that can come with speaking out um, and putting yourself on the line, uh, whether it's physically, emotionally, or whatever. But um, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting question. I think that there's certainly more that we can be doing, um, starting with who you're hiring in those organizations. Um, because racialized players do tend to lean on other racialized staff. Uh, same with racialized students tend to lean on racialized professors and things like that. Um, so who you see around you can make a big difference. But um, yeah, I think if, if it's not going to come from the top, then the players do, they are kind of a bit by themselves in a way. Yeah, and I think it just takes like certain individuals. Like uh, Mayor McDougall is uh, the assistant coach at St. Lawrence University, my alma mater. And uh, she sent an email and... We're starting a book club. Um, nice. On Monday, unfortunately, I'm gonna miss the first day of book club because I'm attending your your uh, panel. <laughs> Sorry, that's okay. <laughs> there was too many good things, but still, um, it, I I just thought it was nice. I you know she she messaged me. She's like, check your email. We're the whoever wants to participate. We're reading Just Mercy, um, a story of justice and redemption. And uh, she has a couple professors that are gonna be kind of navigating our our book club conversations um so I think it just you know it's sad but it just takes a putting in your own effort but I thought that was really nice she's like hey well right now I can't go recruiting um you know we don't know what college sports is going to look like but she was like there's something all of my players can do and all of my graduated players can do if they want to participate and I thought that was just incredible yeah I know it's a fabulous idea um, I think that small groups of friends can totally do that as a way to kind of facilitate dialogue that maybe you just don't really know how to start. For sure. Or just sharing, sharing context. Like I like to read, not everyone likes to read. Like I've gotten so many book recommendations, but like for my friends, I recommend uh, podcasts, you know, basically anything you're featured on for, for hockey. I always say burn it all down because we love them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you. you know, honestly, I think it's just, education um is what's going to make everyone a little bit more comfortable speaking out and you know it can be scary I think you had said it on uh the last podcast it's like it could be scary to to speak because you don't know what you're saying uh if it if it's correct but I think it's it's overcoming that fear and and just not being scared to ask questions or saying I don't understand um and and trying to educate yourselves so I'll push back on that education piece just okay. a bit. Yeah, please. Because as an educator, <laughs> I understand full well the limits of education, right? So, and I explained this to my students actually early on in, in classes. Like, you know, I teach 200 students at the same time, same material, same lecture, same readings. They do not come away with the same things, right? Um they do not interpret it the same way. They do not think that certain things have the same value. Um, so education is certainly key. It's like a fundamental piece, but it is not the be all and end all. It cannot work in and of itself. Um, 
And it's a lot largely because of how people's experiences shape how they read that that educational piece that they're getting, right? Um, for some people, they're like, yes, this is exactly what I've been wanting to say, but I couldn't articulate. Or they're like, well, I never thought about it this way. And other people are like, that's, that's bullshit, right? Um, so education is certainly um, a necessary component, but I personally just really don't like uh, putting too much emphasis on the power that it has because uh, it just really doesn't have a uniform effect, unfortunately. So what do you think education is best coupled with in that sense? Is it just having conversations amongst yourselves with other people or is it, you know, you know, obviously taking action? It's one thing to learn and then to not do anything with what you mm-hmm. learn. But, you know, what do you think for someone, for example, for anybody who's listening or for athletes out there, like what's kind of like the best way to work on becoming a better person? <laughs> That's like a million like it's a dollar question. question. It's a million dollar question. But yeah, I'm just curious to get your take because I agree. I think education, it's, it's everyone can interpret it in the way that they want to and the way that suits them best. I think us three will take the education and we'll try and talk about it with people, but that's not the case for everyone. And I mean, in the same vein, also, like, not everything that's written out there is is factual or good-natured either. So, Right. Um, you could get a lecture on being a horrible person, too. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so I think education needs to be coupled with like an appropriate culture and and policies that kind of support those things, right? Like, so those structural pieces need to to align with the education. And in some ways, you do want to make it as difficult as possible to make the wrong choices, which is something we've done with like smoking, right? Um, The education part wasn't the thing that made people stop smoking necessarily because, you know, people still do it and they put the pictures of the lungs on the pack and it doesn't stop them. But it's the fact that we made it very difficult for people to smoke in society in general. Um, So that's, you know, one of the ways that you can kind of do it. But um, I think to the question about how you become a better person, I think that journey is very different for for different people, right? So um, my approach to teaching is that, for my first year course, we cover, it's like a survey course. So we do things, everything from gender, race, sexuality, uh, technology, the environment, whatever. My goal is not for them to love everything that they're going to get in that course. If they do, that's great. But I want them to hopefully leave that course with one thing that makes them think, oh, I didn't know that. That's kind of interesting. So that four years down the line or whatever, when they're trying to enter med school or law school or whatever they're doing, they're like, oh, that's that thing. And, you know, I have some sort of background knowledge that makes me think differently about it. Um, So, yeah, I mean, the journey itself, I think it it takes, um, it's, what is the trigger for different people is, uh, is hard to say. Um, But certainly, I think what you do when you're trying to become an ally and accomplice, whatever, I think it's the same approach that you yeah. would with uh, with any kind of physical training is that you do the skill, you do the gym work, and then you go and play a little bit and you figure out where those holes in your game are, right? So you're like, oh, okay, that's the thing I need to be practicing or I'm weak in this. So I go back to the gym and I go back and do drills <laughs> and I work on those things and then I go try them again, right? So it's never this stage of like, here I am, I am an ally, <laughs> I know how to do everything, right? If you're waiting for that stage, you're never going to get in the game. Um, so it is about <laughs> reading something, figuring it out a little bit, and then trying it, like 
bring it out at a dinner conversation and you're like, oh, that went sideways um, yeah. because, because I don't have the appropriate information or I didn't frame it in the right way. So you go back and you read some more and then you try it again with another group of people, right? So um, it's just kind of that back and forth of like practice play, practice play. And it's it's okay to get it wrong. I think that's what people need to understand. Yeah, just a lot of self-assessment. I think it was great that you brought up like sort of like uh, I think the the theory is is called nudging. It's like a, Richard Thaler, the behavior economist, came up with the concept, and I think that's what was generally adopted for uh, smoking. Is basically like you said, you make it impossible for people to make the the wrong choice and, and nudging people in the right directions without really realizing. <laughs> um, but I think I think that was great, and I I mean I I took away a lot right there just about self-assessment and I think if everyone can make incremental changes over time I mean hopefully hopefully with some structural implementation of of your policy or other policies um, we'll see a positive cultural change because it it really needs to happen I guess with with what you study is quite heavy um my question was just, what do you, what's the most rewarding part of your research? Because obviously, you know, when you hear you work so hard on something that would have positive changes um, and Hockey Canada just kind of doesn't acknowledge it, it, it could be quite disappointing. So what do you find the most rewarding part of your job and what keeps you motivated? Good question. Um, certainly the students, like the students that really just like, become bright eyed and they're like, oh, like I just didn't, I've never heard of these stories before. I never thought about these things. That certainly um, keeps you going. Um, For a long time, I definitely struggled with whether anything that I was doing mattered, like whether it was making any difference. Um, And it wasn't really until maybe the last year that people started picking it up. And I was like, oh, maybe this does actually have some value to it. So, you know, I think sometimes you, you never you won't know for a long time. And this is, it just happenstance that my research came out in a very timely period to be available for, you know, this kind of pandemic moment and Black Lives Matter. So um, I think it, it really is like the individual, like the random emails that I'll get that are like, I got one the other day, uh, just this weekend. And it was like, I had no idea that other people cared about these issues in hockey the same way that uh, I do. And so there's kind of like you meet very cool people doing this work. Um, and I think that might be one of the most rewarding things is figuring out who's in your little army and you just keep collecting all these people. Um, and then you you have this awesome group of people to lean on when you need them. That sounds so similar to what I experienced in women's hockey. And I'm sure, Mal, you can attest to that, too. When you just keep on hearing, when you feel like no one cares about what you do, and then all of a sudden you have all these people who show up to the games or who, a bit like you, Courtney, like just send you an email being like, I heard about, <laughs> I heard about your work, or in this case, you know, I've heard about the Canazen when the team was around and I didn't know it existed. How can I get tickets type of thing? So I think, I think those are the moments that make everything that we do worthwhile and Courtney, as much as we would love to chat with you for like hours on end, we know that you have a life and we know that our listeners also have lives. So if they've stuck with us until this point, thank you. But before we wrap it up, uh, we just wanted to know, you know, what projects do you have on the go right now? If you can talk about them, of course, I know that you have a book that's coming out, I think at the end of this year, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. In the fall, um, my book changing on the fly 
I think it's uh, Hockey Through the Voices of South Asian Canadians. <laughs> I think that's the title we settled on. Um, it'll be released. I think, I think it's supposed to be October. Yeah. I have the title written here. Okay, good. <laughs> I got it right. So, yeah, you can find that uh, pre-order from Rutgers University Press. Um, so that comes out. I'm working on, I'm starting a new research project right now looking at kind of adult hockey learning opportunities. Um because as an adult hockey learner, there just aren't a lot of opportunities for us. Like everything is for kids. <laughs> Every time I pass a flyer for power skating in the rink, I look at it and there's like ages, six to 10. <laughs> um, and I was like, well, I need to work on my edges. Who's going to teach me? Um, and I can't tell you how many times I've emailed skating coaches and they either just ignore you or they just brush you off. Really? Like I've, I've had a, yeah, I've had a coach. I was like, I moved to Kingston. I was like, and I wanted to do some development work. And I reached out to a coach and he met me at a rink and he's like, and he saw, he came out to one of my games and he was like, I don't know why you need lessons. He's like, you're one of the better players. And I was like, right. But do you, <laughs> um, there, there's still learning to be had and yeah. I'm willing to pay you for that learning. Um, and you know, no behavioral issues it's easy money and yet for some reason <laughs> yeah, nobody <laughs> no yeah nobody wants to like teach adult learners so um, when we kind of look at the development scale in Canada in particular we have this belief that kids are supposed to pick up the hockey between the ages of zero and four I don't even know what the age zero is but um <laughs> what about all the people who pick it up later in life? Like, where are we supposed to learn and become part of this game? And what I've realized uh, playing in Kingston is that most of the women I play with, they've never had a lesson. Like they just sign up for a league and then they just start playing. Okay. Um, and so there's like this huge opportunity to grow the game. But when we talk about growing the game, we're only talking about mm -hmm. kids. Um, so that's kind of a new research project that I'm working on. Um, and yeah, I'm still in the middle of shooting this short documentary on uh, bicycle waste, but the pandemic has put a <laughs> wrench into that. <laughs> I think that's the cool. I cannot wait for that. Can you give our listeners just like a, a short two sentence synopsis of what you're going to be covering? Because I think it's so interesting. <laughs> I mean, it's just kind of looking at the, the, the waste that is created from making all of our toys, right? Like our bikes and hockey sticks and things. We, we have um, become really critical about plastic water bottles and all those things that end up in the landfill, but we've never actually looked at the carbon footprint, the entire lifespan of sporting goods. Um, so it's just kind of one way to, for us to, again, question how we make things and, and what we do with them when they, when they die. And usually they just end up in a landfill or at the bottom of the ocean, uh, depending on what it is, but it's a problem. Yeah. I, I find it interesting because like, especially the bike portion, like, you know, people who cycle to work, you know, we're like, we're being green, but then it's like the amount of bikes. What do we do with these bikes after the mm -hmm. fact? And um, when you told me to just Google like bike graveyards, it is wild. If people have time to Google it, it is terribly sad. Um, it's not green at all. It's just a graveyard of bicycles. Yeah, certainly the, I mean, it's, it's not the full story. It's, I think it's a, it's kind of like the, the far end of the spectrum, but at the same time, like how you make bikes is through mining, right? Yeah. The extractive industries is yeah. what makes bikes. Um, and that's just something that kind of gets left out of the story because the activity itself is very environmentally friendly and that's great. But, um, the rubber tires and things like that, um, is, is a big problem. So, uh, bike manufacturers themselves, they're kind of, they're at the forefront of really questioning, um, sporting goods and how we make them um, far better than any other 
kind of industry so far. So hopefully the bike people will lead the change, but we'll see. As a cyclist, I am happy to be a part of that community. <laughs> well, Courtney, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Um, if you want, you could just plug your social media and your website so people can find you. And we'll be sure to link uh, the relevant uh, papers and your book in the show notes so everyone could read and share the uh, anti-racism policy paper specifically because everyone should have a look at that. Um, so where can we find you on social media? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Courtney Cito, C-O-U-R-T-N-E-Y-S-Z-T-O. Um, and you can find a link to my website on the profile there. So Twitter is probably the best place to find me. Perfect. Well, Courtney, thank you so much for taking the time. We had an amazing morning. Thank you, guys. It's been a pleasure. Check one, two. Check one, two. Woo! Subscribe to our podcast. Rate and review. (laughs) We're too excited. We're too excited. Uh, Like Mal said, like I said, rate and review it. You know, on Apple Podcasts. Show some love. You can also listen to us on Spotify, on Google Podcasts. Ballado Quebec as well. So many places. So many. You could also show us some love on Facebook. You know, Instagram too. Mm-hmm. At Away From The Play and on Twitter at Mel underscore and underscore Sass. You can follow us individually. Game Changer. On Twitter at Sass underscore on the go. And Mel at Mel The Rock. Special thanks to Mathieu Brutus for the awesome music. And Naimaloof for the brand new logo. Give them a follow on Instagram as well. And of course, we'll see you next week.